While you're standing, if you could grab your Bibles or your smart tablet or your smartphones, whatever it is that you're using, and uh, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As we're going to continue our series in the book of 1 Corinthians, we're near the end. This is our next to last sermon on uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. And if you could look at verse 50, and we're going to read from verse 50 to 58. And to those who are visiting with us today, we are truly uh, thankful that you would come and be our guest today. We pray that a word uh, would be spoken or a song would be sung that will enrich your walk in the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50 through 58. And today, uh, the title of today's sermon is going to be The Death of Death. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15 starting at verse 50, in the precious, authentic, matchless, majestic, true word of God reads. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable and the mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You may be seated in the name of Jesus. I don't know if you guys heard about uh, a bunch of billionaires coming together to attempt to defy death. There's a man by the name of Peter Thiel, who is the creator of PayPal and uh, has huge investments in eBay, along with other young entrepreneurs like the high-tech titans of Facebook, Google, Napster, and Netscape. They are all using and coming together to form billions of dollars in order to invest it in biomedical research. And what they want to do is they literally said, we can come up with a way that mankind can be immortal. And they started off with these high hopes and they got all these specialists together and they said, we are going to find kind of this eternal life uh, cure. And after getting together, they say, you know, that may be a little ambitious. So what we're going to do, instead of trying to find something that's going to make us uh, immortal, what we'll do is we'll just settle for living an additional 150 years. They have come together. They have pulled their resources together in order to defy death. The, the Roman philosopher Seneca says death is 
the wish of some, the relief of many, and the end of all. And while we all uh, may desire long life or even to live immortal, we want to know that there's only one way to immortality. There's only one way to eternal life, and that is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, one extreme is us trying to defy death. The other extreme is us embracing death as a friend. There's a movement which uh, is known as kind of the hospice movement that says that that death is just a, a natural part of life. And that we should be comfortable with it. We should not fear it. We should embrace it as a, another stage of life. And we should, we should just normalize it as much as possible. And both of these extremes, both of these views on death are, are incorrect. We, we should not try to escape death through human means. And we should not try to normalize death and to make it just be a part of life. Why? Because that's not what the scripture does. And that's not what the scriptures teach us about death. The scriptures teach us, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26, that death is an enemy. Death entered the world through sin. As a result of Adam and Eve's rebellion, and we should not become cozy with it and cuddle with it. But rather, we should know that there is something greater than death and something that will defeat death. And some of us in here, we are afraid of dying. We fear it. And some of us, we have a right to be afraid of dying. And we should be afraid of dying because we have not put our faith and trust in Jesus. But for those who have put our faith and trust in Jesus, we should not fear dying. We should rather see that Jesus has defeated death. And we should celebrate the fact that death is one day no longer going to be our enemy. And that one day we will unclothe ourselves of death's clothes and be immortal. So as we look at today's text, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church of Corinth. And he is really giving them a sustained excitement of celebration. He's saying there is a reason that even in death's face, even though it is our enemy, there's a reason that we can celebrate. And this celebration and this view of death that stays from these extremes but sees death as an enemy that will one day be swallowed up and defeated by Jesus should lead us to live a very specific way as believers. So in today's text, we're going to look at three things. First, we're going to look at is is how God will clothe us, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, how he will clothe us with immorality. Immortality, excuse me. How he will clothe us with immortality. Second, we're going to look at how death loses its sting. Third, we're going to look at how these truths encourage and affect us. How they encourage and affect us. And the big idea that we're going to see pulled out of this text is that Paul is trying to encourage the church of Corinth to fight on, to fight on, because all of Jesus' enemies will be defeated. All of Jesus' enemies will be defeated. All right? So let's look at the first thing that Paul wants us to see in this text. He wants us to look at how God will clothe us with immortality. And we're going to see this uh, brought, this point, made in verses 50 through 54. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. 
And what is Paul saying? He's saying that no human being in their natural state of their humanity can see God and his kingdom. That in order to see God and his kingdom, to be a part of his God and his kingdom, number one, you must be born again. In order to enter into the kingdom of God, you have to repent of your sin and put your faith and trust in the good news of Jesus. A message that says that he has come to save us from our sins and that he can save us from any of our sins. And he has come to save us from the very wrath of God. Paul points out that no flesh and blood can enter the kingdom of heaven. So number one, we have to see we have to be born again. But second, in order to see God, to, to, to experience him in his glory, in his kingdom, once it's truly uh, fulfilled and once it's truly here and in a full reality, that we must be in our glorified state. We cannot be in bodies that are perishable. We have to be in bodies that are imperishable. And the only way that one gets an imperishable body, a body that does not decay or corrupt, is if they put their faith and trust in Jesus. Paul goes on in verse 51, and he says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the moment of a twinkling eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and perishable and we shall be changed. So Paul says, look, he says, I want to tell you a mystery. I want to reveal something to you, church at Corinth, that you may not already know. As you all are trying to uh, play with the doctrine of of resurrection, as you all are listening to worldly speakers saying that the the dead cannot be raised, I want to unveil the curtain, allow you to step behind it so that you can see a glorious mystery. And what is this glorious mystery? He says this, he says, number one, we shall not all sleep. What is he saying? We shall not all sleep. He's saying everyone will not die. There will be some who will never taste death. And why won't they ever taste death? Because when Jesus comes back, as Paul told the church at Thessalonica, some will just be caught up. Those who are walking faithfully with them will be caught up with them. It says, number one, we shall not all die. But then he goes on and says, but there's hope. We shall all be changed. And what does he mean we shall all be changed? Those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, he's saying that there will be a, a, a sort of continuation with our bodies. Though we are dead, our bodies will be miraculously raised from the dead. And yet at the same time, we will receive, our bodies will be glorified. They will be in a state that is no longer able to decay, that is no longer able to fall apart. The Apostle Paul is encouraging the church of Corinth to to not have a secular view of death, but to have a glorious view of death by seeing this mystery and seeing it revealed. And I love what verse 52 says. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and perishable and we shall be changed. This this idea of this all happening in a moment. And this this word moment, this word moment in the Greek is the word um, atomus, in which the word atom is derived from. And it's this idea uh, or, or the word refers to something that is so small that it cannot be divided anymore. Here, atomus applies to time. It's saying that in, 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 a, in a split second, 
in the smallest fraction, uh, Jesus is going to come back and these things are going to happen. He who controls time is going to allow his son to enter into time and change time in a moment of time. He said, this is going to happen. And then there's going to be the sound at the sound of a trumpet. At the sound of a trumpet, things are going to change. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says at the trumpet, cry, the Son of Man will come back. Paul says the same thing to the church at Thessalonica. And I can't wait to hear that trumpet sound. That trumpet sound is going to sound better than Louis Armstrong. That trumpet sound is going to sound better than Miles Davis. That trumpet sound is going to be a sound of victory. It's going to be a sound of resurrection. It's going to be a sound of truth. And that's what we as Christians have to live for, and that's what we have to hope for. At that sound of that trumpet, there will be no longer a need for aging cream. There will be no longer a need for makeup. There will be no longer a need for CrossFit fitness gyms. There'll be no longer a need for uh, any of these things because that which was decaying will now be perfect. Everything around us is dying. Everything around us is decaying. We got a lot of rain yesterday. And I was thinking about my gutters. Amen? I was like, I need to get up and clean those gutters and get some leaves out of those gutters before that rain starts to do some damage. All right? And this is a call out to any deacons who want to help me. Amen. <laughs> I got to get on a big ladder, extend the ladder and get up. Because everything, our houses are decaying. Our bodies are decaying. Because of sin, because of the fall. But one day Jesus is going to come back at a moment's second. And everything will be made right. And Paul is encouraging Christians in, the, in light of this. He's saying, fight on. Don't allow yourselves to become apathetic. Don't allow yourselves to become swayed by false doctrine. Don't allow yourselves to miss these glories that are promised in Scripture. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And I just want to encourage that person who's here today to look forward to and live for this day. Don't live for yourself. Don't live for your own advantage. Don't, don't live for temporary fixes. Don't live for temporary pleasures. Live for that which is eternal. Rejoice in the fact that we don't have to put all of our money together to figure out a way that we can live forever on this earth. But God has prepared a place for us where we can live forever without decay, without shootings, without racism, without unjust laws, that God has already prepared this place in heaven. A place where every day is Father's Day or the Father's Day. And those who are fatherless have a father and can see his face. Live for the day where the S-U-N won't shine because the S-O-N is shining. We are easily swayed and easily drawn in by the lusts and the cares of these worlds because we don't have a big enough picture of what God has prepared for us. So Paul is saying, I want to show you how we are going to change from perishable to imperishable at the sound of a trumpet. For, 
verse 53, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable. Why must it put on the imperishable? Because God has decreed. Because God has promised it. Because God is immutable and God is a God who does not lie. He says it again. And this mortal body must put on immortality. And, you know, I can imagine as Paul is writing these words, the excitement that he has as the Holy Spirit has revealed these truths to him. Because Paul, history uh, tells us, and we read even through the New Testament, uh, had some ailments. He had some physical forms. It said that he has some eye problems. And the reason that he pins at the end of a letter that I'm writing in my own handwriting, excuse the big writing, is because he was probably going blind. Paul knew what it was like to suffer in the flesh physically. And he's saying, I'm looking forward to the day where this mortal body is no longer in pain. Looking forward to that day. He continues in verse 54. He says it again. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. And now he's going to take us back to the book of Isaiah, chapter, I believe, 25 and 6. And, and he's going to kind of take Isaiah's saying and, 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 and use it almost in a hymn-like form in order to encourage the church. So the first thing we saw was how God would clothe us with immorality. Immortality, excuse me. He's going to close us with immortality uh, when Jesus comes back at the sound of a trumpet, at the twinkling of an eye, he's going to do that for us, make us imperishable. But now we're going to look at how death loses its sting. Paul goes on to say death is swallowed up in victory. I love this picture of death. All of us have been touched by death. We've been affected by death in some way. I remember the first time I was really affected by death. It was my grandmother. Her name was Lily. And what a fitting name because she really was a lily. She was just a godly woman who raised her children uh, right, um, who uh, raised them with the word of God at the center of their lives. I remember going over to my grandmother's house and, and staying with her, and all she would talk about was the Bible. And she made breakfast, and she prepared lunch. It was just Jesus, 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 Jesus. I remember her praying over me in the middle of a worship service and speaking into my life, saying that God had a purpose for you. Me and my grandmother, we was tight. We was tight for spiritual reasons, then we were tight for other reasons. She bought me a Sega Genesis. I will never forget that. My father was like, I don't have the money. She was like, here you go. And then, Sega. And I was excited, right? But my grandmother met death one morning. And I called my parents this, this morning to make sure that I wasn't uh, 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 stretching a story. But I remember it. She was sick. She was ill. She was fighting cancer. And one night we were just at, at home. And in the middle of the night at 3 a.m., I got up from my sleep. And I went into my mother's room and I shook her and I said, uh, Mom, you need to check on grandmother. She said, boy, go back to sleep. I said, no, Mom, you really need to check on grandmother. She said, why? I said, something's not right. I just feel it. Something's not right. She then called my auntie who stayed um, in the same house, and she went upstairs, and she checked on my grandmother, and she had passed away to be with the Lord. I'll never forget all of us. She had eight children coming to that house, seeing a shell of her, her body there. And death's nasty brush had come against her. You know, 
Death happens because sin entered the world. And the scripture says that death will be swallowed up. (laughs) It will be consumed in victory. Jesus has already overcome death. He has already given us a a, a receipt, a, a promise that it can be done on a larger scale by him himself being raised from the dead. And even today as you sit here and you mourn the death maybe of a father, the death of a close friend, know that one day death will be no more. In fact, Paul goes on and he kind of teases death. He says, oh, death, where's your victory? He says, where is it? You who have taken billions and billions of lives, where is your victory? And then I love what he says, oh, death, where is your sting? That Then he goes on in verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord, Jesus Christ, says the sting of death is sin. What does he mean? He means that the power of sin, he says, is in the law. Romans 3, 23 says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody sins. Romans 6.23 says, but the wages of sin is death. It's death. Because of sin, we, we die. And not just physically, we're spiritually dead. We're under God's wrath. We're separated from Deserving eternal hell. Death stings because sin separates us from God. And because... Paul goes on to say, because the power of sin is the law. What what does he mean the power of sin is the law? Well, the first thing we want to understand is that the law is beautiful. Sometimes we can think of the law and we can say it's something that is not beautiful. No, it's beautiful. According to Psalms 19, verse 1 through 3, it is beautiful. It's perfect. It is clean. It is pure. It is able to make us mature. According to Psalm 119, it it is beautiful. Why is it beautiful? Because the law reveals the character of God. It reveals his holiness. It reveals his standard. But the way that the power of sin is the law is that the law actually reveals to us how sinful we are. The law reveals to us how broken we are. The law reveals to us how idolatrous we are. The law reveals to us how much we lack self-control, how unsober-minded we are. How we, in essence, want to be our own God by going against God's holy law and setting up laws for ourselves. But then Romans 7 and 5 gives us even more clarity. It says, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. The power of sin is the law because as Romans 7 and 5 says, because the, we are, our sinful passions are aroused by the law. <laughs> when we hear a law, rather than our flesh uh, saying, you know, I need to be under control, I'm not, I'm not going to do this. Um, instead, our, our, our flesh is aroused. Our flesh wants to do that which it cannot. Paul said, when I want to do good, evil is always beside The law arouses and it reveals our sinfulness. Verse 57 says, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
See, death has lost its sting because the law, in essence, has lost its sting. Because Jesus has, in ways, nullified the law by keeping it and all of its commandments. And he has taken the punishment we deserve for not keeping the law. And he has replaced our righteousness with his righteousness. And he has bore our unrighteousness upon his shoulders and he nailed it to a cross. And on that cross, our record of debt, our record of sin, all those things that were mounted up against us for breaking God's law was forgiven. Paul goes on, look at what he says in his text. He says, death, where is your sting? It's no longer a sting. It's it's no longer a sting. And sin no longer finds its power in the law because we are saved by grace through faith. Paul then goes and he celebrates, but thanks be to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have that victory? Do you know that victory? Are you experiencing the victory that comes through Jesus Christ? A victory that allows us not to feel condemned when we sin. There's no sin, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. A victory that allows us not to find our identity in the things of this world. A victory that allows us to have hope, no matter what our situation looks like, because we know that we belong to the Father, and that nothing can separate us from his love. Listen, God says, I am going to give you immortality. He says, I am going to take the sting out of death. Death will no longer have power over you. Even now, it no longer has power over you. While it is still your enemy, it is not something that you should fear. It's not something that we should cuddle. It should remind us of our sinful state, but it's not something that we should fear because death is under the control of Jesus. Jesus is victorious. I always have this conversation in my head between death and Satan. It's not in the scripture. It's unfounded. It's just a fun conversation. That sometimes I have in my head. And how death, when Jesus died on the cross, thought he won. And it's just a conversation, just just go with me for a second, and how Satan comes to death. And he says, death, I need you to hold on to Jesus. And death arrogantly looks at Satan and says, hold on to Jesus. Have I lost many that you have given me? Just about everybody that you've ever given me, I've kept. I've got Isaiah, Elijah. I've got Ezekiel, Micah, I've got Adam and Cain and Abel. I can just imagine death telling Satan, Satan, just go back home. Go, go get some rest. I'm going to hold on to Jesus. And Satan said, no, 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 death, you don't understand. There were some prophecies that he will, that he would defeat you. And death arrogantly looks at him and says, I'm undefeated. There's a few that slipped through my hand, but there was other reasons for that. And then on that third day, I can see Satan running back to death. Death, do you still got Jesus? And death telling Satan, Satan, I need you to sit down for a minute. (laughs) Something started happening early in the morning. (laughs) There's awakening in the quake. And Jesus got up. The glorious thing is not only did Jesus get up then, but the Bible says that we one day will get up too. (laughs) And death would have lost all those who were purchased by the blood of Jesus. All those who confessed 
that they were sinners in need of a savior, all those who admitted that they were weak, all those who heard that cry coming to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I can't wait to that day when we are caught up in the sky and I can see that sweet, my sweet grandmother Lily again. And we can say together, Jesus swallowed up death, didn't he? But even more so, where I can look to the Father and say, oh, how glorious. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how beautiful. Oh, what? What unity. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And what I love, he says, not even death. Perhaps on the day when we are raised from there, perhaps we will feel God's love like no other time. When we realize that death could not even keep us from it. Death can't even keep us from it. He loves us so much. Final question we'll look at in this text is this. Looked at how God will clothe us with immortality. We looked at how death loses its thing. Now we want to look at how these truths encourage us and affect us. See, Paul isn't just telling us these truths so that we, the church of Corinth can kind of go about their daily life. No, he's telling them these truths because it should affect us in the here and now. And look at what he says. Then we're done. Therefore, in other words, as a result of what has been said. And I believe he's pointing back to the entire chapter, uh, 15th chapter of Corinth, but I also believe he's pointing back to the entire book. This is kind of his... His, 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 his last big statement of encouragement, he says, therefore, as a result of all this that I wrote you, as a, a result of all this that I've said, as a, as a result of the, the promise of the resurrection, I need you to do something. He says, my beloved brothers, a term of endearment. Now, this word brothers, Paul hasn't been sexist. In the Greek, it's a word that goes for both brothers and sisters. He's saying, y'all, therefore, y'all, be steadfast. It says, as a result of knowing that all of Jesus' enemies have been defeated and will be defeated, he says, be steadfast. He says, be immovable. What does he mean? He says, don't allow yourself to be easily pushed around and swayed by Satan tactics. Don't allow the cares of this world to draw you away from Jesus. Steadfast. Keep steadily moving forward. <laughs> Keep pressing on. Have a mind that is made up. Have a mind that is determined. Have a mind that is set on persevering. He's saying be steadfast. Be unmovable. You know, we think of people who we see as heroes and heroines, and we say the quality, what, what makes them heroes is the fact that they persevered. The fact that they were met with some obstacles and they kept going. The fact that when all the odds was against them, they didn't give up. And normally it's because they had a vision of something that was so great that it allowed their sufferings to seem small in comparison to the end goal. Paul is saying, if you believe 
that Jesus is who he says he is. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Be like a, a mighty bulger, a, a big rock. Don't, don't let people push you around. Don't let Satan push you around. Because God has something in store for you. And I just want to take a quick detour to my fathers, and I just want to encourage you to be steadfast. Be immovable. And you, you can't be steadfast in your own strength. Determining in yourself that I'm going to be steadfast, it won't work. We do that every new year. We say, I'm going, to, I'm going to do it this year. I'm going to be steadfast in this area. And if you're like me, February 1st, that steadfastness has worn off. No, we don't find our steadfastness in ourselves. We find it in Jesus. It is through Jesus that we have victory. It is through Jesus that we have strength. It is through Jesus that we are immovable. Didn't Jews say Huh? That God is the one who is able <laughs> to keep you from stumbling. It is through God. So he says, be steadfast, be immovable. He says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Not sometimes, he says, always. And he doesn't say, always do the work of the Lord. He says, abounding in the work of the Lord multiplying in the work of the Lord, overflowing in the work of... What is the work of the Lord? The work of the Lord is the gospel. It is us, number one, believing in it. And second, it's us sharing it. It's us sharing it verbally, (laughs) and it's us sharing it by the way that we live. He says, abound in that work. Don't give up in the message. Isn't that what the Church of Corinth was doing? They were starting to give up in the message. They were trading this good news in for another type of news, a false news, a quick news, the philosophies of man, the ways of the world. Rather than holding on to the gospel of Jesus Christ, they began to, to make idols out of their preachers and out of their teachers. Paul said, no, be steadfast, be unmovable, abound in the work of the Lord, abound in the message of the cross. The message of Christ and Christ alone. So I just want to encourage Forest Baptist Church, abound. Abound in the work of the Lord. And do it all the time. Look to him all the time. When depression comes, abound in the work of the Lord. Don't allow Satan to allow you to go inward and to just focus on yourself. And you're talking, looking at a person who has dealt with deep depression and had to learn to push out because depression makes you want to just push in and make everything about feelings, emotions, and where. but pushing out means to say, even though Satan is lying to me, even though I'm believing these truths, I know these things aren't true. I know God loves me. I know Jesus loves me. I know I have a purpose. I know I've been called. I know that he's working all things together for the good of those who love the Lord. And in spite of where I am, I am going to do the work of the Lord. In spite of where I am, I'm going to sing praises to God in the choir. In spite of where I am, I'm going to usher. In spite of where I am, I'm going to witness to my neighbor on my job. In spite of where I am, I'm going to be hospitable and invite non-believers over so I can tell them about Jesus. Jesus, in spite of where I am, always abounding in the work of the Lord. 
And that's, that's tough because our flesh, our flesh wants to take breaks, doesn't it? Our flesh wants to cruise. That's my fear for Forest Baptist Church. Is that we've kind of hit cruise control. He says no. Paul says, in light of the resurrection, we need to always be abound. Because we've got a mission. We've got a calling. And that's to reach the lost. And that's to disciple those who are new in the faith. And that's why I want to encourage our men once again. Paul says in chapter 16, verse 13, be watchful and stand firm in the faith. Act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. I want to encourage our fathers, I want to encourage our men to abound in the work of the Lord. I want to encourage us to be strong and to act like men. By God's grace, last year we've, we had a number of men give their lives to, to the Lord. Uh, we've baptized a number of young men. And uh, I'm going to be transparent with you as a church. Uh, one of the things that I, I am beginning to get discouraged about is the lack of men stepping up to love on those men. And I know we're busy. I know we've been walking in this thing for a long time, some of us. But we've got to abound in the work of the Lord. And what that looks like is taking interest in those men. It looks like you sharing your God-given resources with those men. Don't have to have a, 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 a great strategic plan, but it looks like you're just showing them what God has already taught you. What God has revealed himself through his word to you about. It's tight, but it's right. Because I'm slowly seeing them fade away. And it's not because, necessarily because they, they weren't saved and they're not walking with Jesus. But I think it's because we, we have a few doing a work of many. And I want to encourage us to abound in the work of the Lord. To see a soul as the most important matter on the earth. To see the Great Commission as our call to make disciples, fully devoted followers of Jesus. He goes on and he says, your labor is not in vain. Your fight is not futile. Look at this. The last part of this. He says, knowing that, you're, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And, and maybe we think that spending those time, making those sacrifices, exhausting ourselves at the appropriate times for the kingdom is in vain. There's a time to rest. There's a time to, to work. You want to have a good rhythm of rest and work. But he says, look, he says, your labor is not in vain. Why is your labor not in vain? Because one day when Jesus comes back, we will be rewarded for our labor. And the greatest reward is seeing him and being in his presence for all eternity. But we also, Paul taught us early on in the book, our, our works will be judged by the Lord. The labor's not in vain. 
I want to encourage you to keep fighting sin. I want to encourage you to keep pursuing your spouse. I want to encourage you to keep praying for your children. I want to encourage you to keep being a part of the church. I want to encourage you to keep caring for the poor, to keep fighting injustice. I want to encourage you to suffer well. Whatever your suffering is, whatever it might be, suffer well. For your labor is not in vain. One day, it all will be worth it. And and the way that we uh, come to that place of of believing that one day it will all be worth it is by staying in the presence of the Lord through his word. It's by staying in community with others. It's by reminding ourselves of the promises of God. This week in community group, one of our uh, uh, community group leaders said something I just thought was just so profound. We uh, were asking one of the questions based off last week's sermon. And she said, you know, when I don't read the word of God, um, I forget his promises. I forget his promises. And when we are not uh, investing in the work, when we are not investing in the word, when we're not in prayer, when we're not taking time to enjoy his presence, we forget his promises. And we begin to give in to, to things that are a lot less satisfying than him and things that will fade. So be steadfast. Be immovable. Be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Know that your labor is not in vain. For those who put their faith and trust in Jesus in Charleston, South Carolina, at Emmanuel Baptist, at Emmanuel AME, I'm trying to make everybody Baptist, at Emmanuel AME Church, (laughs) their labor is not in vain. For those who put their faith and trust in Jesus, their life on this earth was ended, but their spirit is before God to be absent with the body, and the body is to be present with the Lord. And they are tasting the beauty of God. They are realizing the majesty of their Savior Jesus. They are seeing the one who has nail-scarred palms and nail-scarred feet. And they know that their labor was not in vain. And you've got to believe that your labor is not in vain as well. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would just uh, continue to be with us as a church. I pray, Father God, that you would continue to encourage us as uh, a body. 